right. Good afternoon. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And we're also broadcasting live Sunday, this afternoon, the 3rd of September, on CosmicWavesRadio.com on the web. So you can check us out right there at CosmicWavesRadio.com, Channel 2 this afternoon, for the next couple, three hours. As I said, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's a special weekend webcast. And in just a minute, we'll have Jeff Stray live from his home in the U.K., in London, I presume, or thereabouts. And we'll be back with him in just four or five minutes after we take a minute here for me to get my act together and get everything set up for you, okay? So one more time, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. As I said, a special weekend webcast live with Jeff Stray from England. We'll be talking about his website, Diagnosis 2012, and uh, a number of other topics that have to do with this phenomenon of 2012 that we've been uh, talking about for the last couple of weeks. Jeff has a new book out as well. Let's just hit Amazon.com and we'll catch up with him in just a few minutes. All right. Before that, one more piece of music here. This song is called 13. The band is called Resonant Sun. Back in a minute, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN and CosmicWavesRadio.com. I'm an addict for the mathematics. It's the magic of the galactic. Addicts of tragic, it's automatic. When you're tuned in, illumined, shrooming, enlightened human. In the womb of the universal loop, check the boom of the base. The moon is the place where the space calculates. In the months and the blunts as your passage. So the passage of the moment, not like the Roman calendar. So I'm omen. I'm honing on the droning of the stars late night like Conan. O'Brien, Orion points the way. The spirit like the Mayan. Flying higher than a lion in Zion My ball like a flying Cap in the diet Frequency frequently E equals MC Chronic Atomic Shamanic Tonic Divided Demonic Energy Blowing up like Kennedy Fading y'all like Kennedy Can't you see that the clock is the enemy? Not mentally Cause you're obstructed by an entity Also known as constructed identity This is not how it was meant to be So take back your own destiny Astrologically speaking My sound wave is speaking Just a beacon In a solar light sequence Burning of the heathen Share a sack of the Shiva My light I stand Into pi R squares When I'm in the area Rainbow photon space carrier Shining through the barriers Divine light is here to take care of ya One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, chakra. You could definitely use a lot to walk, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Cosmic pulse, all less than eighteen. With mathematical practice, we use our magical mattress to jump up and down. I like a swing fluctuating. I bring the levitron, solving problems, equation, writing lyrical swings. This is the frequency to this of the scene Like my main dream on me in synchronicity With the tunes that are earthly Exposing to suffocation With an equinox pursuing through ego hurling creativity Looking to the science to understand trigonometry Linking shock to change to express everything 
the beauty of life Like a title, fill your life with a field of magnetic attractive information Unless this illuminating fact of space station It all has an equal and opposite reaction Balancing check hooks, pushing weight in fractions With the algebra of the Sophia, a massive guy And will resurrect your particles, dissolve energy To the level of intensity Calculus and mystical arts, what about the laws Make believe lands in your heart Getting worked up over something Because if it was nothing The boy would always be empty Not by the forces Of course a horse is A magical creature like you and me With celestial blessings In the constellations Arithmetic Take a look again To see a difference Writing sinuous patterns With sequences of prophecies And sets me free to rock and weave Back and forth funky Look to a theological Geological O down brother O G On the lowdown We don't show down with the pronoun Cause we're pronoun And we go round with the merry Who's a merry fairly With the very very Cherry cherry Fairly nearly All the wearly Very merry But fairly With arrow swing And tarot beams For tarot seeds And stereo beams So stereo beams Fuck Goes the weasel And the easel Paintings architecture To massage therapy Spiritual healing From Shiatsu to Cedis We're always educating And I always support the higher key, spreading the wealth lyrically as the bearers must be heads to them the underworld. See, 13, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. 13, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. That's Resonant Sun, a cool song called 13 by request. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's a special Sunday afternoon webcast, and we're coming to you live right now. It's about noontime in mid-Missouri and about 6 p.m. in the United Kingdom, where we'll be speaking with our guest in just a moment. Let me tell you quickly a bit about what's going to happen this afternoon. Jeff Stray is uh, with us on the phone from his home in in England. He is the author of a book that's called Beyond 2012. He has had a website up for a number of years that is addressed at www.diagnosis2012.co.uk and you can link there uh, directly from my site at mikehagan.com. At any rate, uh, in the next few years, there is going to be a tremendous amount of speculation, no doubt, over the possible meaning of the so-called end of the Mayan calendar. And there are already all kinds of theories that are circulating from catastrophic to the ecstatic. Around 1999, my guest Jeff Stray began circulating a booklet that was called Beyond 2012. It listed information, theories, ideas, all kinds of different rants and raves from all kinds of different sources, which predicted 2012 as some sort of an evolutionary pinnacle or a change of dimension, consciousness, something big. At any rate, there's a tremendous amount of information that has been collated between now and then, and much of it uh, is being put together and released to the public in Jeff's new book, Beyond 2012. So, without further ado, we will bring Jeff Stray on the air and say good afternoon and welcome to Radio Orbit. Thanks, Jeff, for being with us. Hi, Mike. Good to be here. Wonderful. Well, first off, it's... uh, London, where we're talking to you from, is that correct? Oh, it's just south of London. It's about, uh, it's, it's a little village called Forest Row near um, East Quincy, which is about an hour south of London. Okay, what's it like there in uh, England this time of year? Um, well, it's been a bit sort of rainy just the last few days, but it's cleared up nicely this afternoon. Uh, it's 
changeable, really. We thought it was going into autumn, but it seems to be going back to autumn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's a nice afternoon here, and I'm glad we have you on the air with us. So let's... Um, for the people who aren't familiar with your work, Jeff, and for me as well, uh, I'm certainly familiar with what you've done on the website over the last few years, but I'd like to know a little bit about your past and your background and what uh, got you involved in this, uh, in this 2012 business to begin with. So maybe you could give us a little bit of background on yourself. Yeah, it all started about 25 years ago for me when I read um, Terence and Dennis McKenna's book, The Invisible Landscape. Right, right. That's... Uh, was telling about their story, the story of their trip down to um, Ecuador, the rainforest there, where they wanted to try and get hold of something which hardly anyone had ever heard of in those days, um, but uh, it's quite familiar now as ayahuasca, the, the jungle brew. And they had this incredible experience down there, and as a result of what came through to them, they went back to the USA, and um, Terence in particular took took it upon himself to try and decode this information he'd been given. Mm. And he'd been told that encoded into the ancient Chinese oracle, the I Ching, um, somehow all the change that happens in the universe um, was encoded into it. The I Ching is the book of change. And uh, so Terrace developed this theory, this novelty theory, about how um, uh, novelty uh, or things that have never happened before uh, are encoded into this time wave and they could actually be theoretically, uh, mathematically, translated out of that and converted into a graph and uh, by a long complex process he managed to translate this stuff into a mathematical uh, equation and then transferred it into a graph and then the graph uh, basically the graph that he came out with showed every, all the change in the universe from the beginning of time to the end of time um, all the, the same graph was encapsulated within itself at smaller and smaller levels each one 64 times um, smaller than the one above it. And so the resulting graph showed all the change in the universe from the beginning of time to the end of time. And those, the, the beginning and end points were the only points where all the subways all meet up. Hmm. So anyway, having read this book, I was quite fascinated by the idea. Uh, and then what he, once he got this graph, he had to correlate it to human history. And he used the explosion of the Hiroshima bomb in 1945 as a sort of massive what he called ingression of novelty into space-time. In other words, something that had never happened before, as far as we know, the explosion of a nuclear bomb over a populated city. Hmm. And then from there, it just a sort of simple calculation forward to the point where the graph ended to work out where the end of the graph was. And uh, it came out then as November 17th, 2012. Hmm. So I was fascinated by this book, and I was just studying it for several years. And it was only in 1987 that it came to my attention that Jose Arguelles had brought out a book called The Mayan Factor in which he was bringing it to the attention of the world that uh, the, the ancient Maya civilization of Mesoamerica had their own calendar system with the same termination point. Uh, well, it's, it's actually 33 days afterwards. Their termination point is the 21st of December 2012. And then, uh, meanwhile, it took me a hell of a long time to get hold of this book from the library. It took 10 months to get hold of it, and then I only was allowed to have it for a couple of weeks, so I kind of photocopied it and was studying it. Right. So I found out about the, um, the Maya endpoint, and that set me off on this search for, because both these calendars, the McKenna showed that um, the I Ching was based on a, a lunar calendar originally because of 64 hexagrams, and each hexagram is six lines, and six times 64 
is 384, 384 which is and 13, 384 right. days in 13 lunar months, mm-hmm. one lunar year. So right, that's right, the right. base cycle of the whole Chinese system. Interesting. They had a sort of Chinese lunar calendar and, and a solar-based calendar from Mesoamerica on the other side of the world, both thousands of years old, with a termination point only 33 days apart. So that's what set me off on the quest to find out what it was all about. Amazing. Well, uh, and that book, at least the one that set you off, uh, the Invisible Landscape was written, what, 1974, I think? Well, it was published in 75, yeah. Okay, 75. So, so it's been... The new... I brought out a new edition in 1993, which was much more widely available with a lot of updates. Uh-huh. And in the 93 edition, he then updated it to include the, the Mayan endpoint because it's clear that uh, McKenna didn't himself know anything about the Maya calendar when he came up with this theory. And that's why he... He then, in the 93 edition, he modified the theory by 33 days so it would coincide with the Maya endpoint. Hmm, very interesting. All right, so 30 years ago is when that information was published. So you've been interested in this ever since then. So you've been looking at it for a long, long time. Yeah, well, I only found out about it in the, um, it was about 25 years for me because I didn't get yeah. the book as <laughs> Right, right when it came it out, sure. Away. All right. Okay, well, um, so where does it lead us today? In other words, uh, uh, 15 years ago, very few people were even talking about this. Uh, today, it seems like more and more, uh, if you go to places, for example, like your website, which, which, which we should give out the address here one more time, it's www.diagnosis2012.co.uk. And again, you can link there directly from my site over at Mike Hagen. But um, uh, Jeff, I'm, I'm sure you get a lot of traffic these days. Oh, I do, yes. I've just... Um I've had a few computer problems recently, so I've, uh, I've had to set up a new system, but I've been updating the site regularly, um, <clears throat> and uh, in order to make that easier, I've set up a, a news group as well called uh, 2012 News, mm-hmm. which is the primary um, purpose of it, is to um, post there and send out automatic newsletters to the members telling them the updates to the website. So that's, uh, that's a, yeah, you, you can link from that to that from the Indexa page of my website, that's the easiest way into that really. Okay. It's a Yahoo discussion group. Okay. And there's some very interesting discussions going on at the moment. Actually, John Major Jenkins is involved in, in uh, discussions on that at the moment. Yeah, John was actually on the air with us um, uh, just just last Monday. Mm. And um, I haven't heard that yet, but yeah, he's, I'll, I'll be listening to the archive. Yeah, he's wonderful, and uh, he's been on the, on the show a couple of times, but I, I, I love having him on the air because he's so, uh, well, he's scholarly, for n- number one, but he's very clear at articulating his own ideas and, and and they can be quite complicated but he's he's gotten really good at describing things you know oh he certainly is very erudite yes you know uh, it's interesting that uh, I, I wasn't going to bring it up to a little bit later but um both you and john are involved in this production that's just being released soon uh, by sharon rose and jay widener that's called uh the odyssey 2012 john was involved with that you uh had uh, uh a nice section in the uh, in the documentary. Maybe you could mention a little bit about that and, and uh, what you made of all the different viewpoints that came out in that particular production. Yeah, I've only seen this, the first edit so far. Uh, I think I think the new edit is on its way to me in the post at the moment. It's taking a bit longer with me being in the UK. Um, but yes, I was very impressed with, uh, with the whole um, attempt to um, try and make this thing understandable to the, to the public. Um, there's a, quite a wide range of viewpoints, but they all they have quite a lot in common at the same time. Hmm. Uh, I think the idea of the film was to be a little bit like what the belief as much as possible, wow. where you've got um, 
uh, various interviews that are split up into bits that keep coming. The, the, the subject matter of the interviews, um, each subject is covered, and people from uh, various people that have done the interviews are then brought in on those subjects as you go through the film. Bill, I will bleep, yeah. All right. Well, along this way, I, I've, I've been interested in this for a long time too, Jeff, and it seems that now more than ever there's a, there's a real polarity between sort of general ideas. And in fact, your book, uh, the title of your book is called Beyond 2012, uh, and the subtitle is Catastrophe or Ecstasy. And it does appear that there's, you know, two sort of viewpoints that are the primary ones, and simply those that think that we're doomed and those that think otherwise. What do you make? Is that, is that, is that the way you've seen it? That is the way, yes. The, the prophecies are really the root of this. Um, people that have made the prophecies that are associated with 2012, all, well, many of them have both um, concepts of uh, catastrophe or earth changes and um, what I call ecstasy, um, which... Uh, it's the, the, more, the more positive size of this in the, in the way of a kind of emotion, um, an evolutionary shift mm. and a sort of transition point in the whole evolution of the species. Uh, well, the word ecstasy actually originally means um, standing outside the body, and there have been some um, connections that Im- imply that we may be looking at, amongst other possibilities, a, a situation which might um, facilitate an out-of-body state in older people. Hmm. Via technological prosthesis or, or, or otherwise, or through consciousness shift or something? Uh, consciousness shift. Um, it seems that uh, they've, in the Monroe Institute, they measured the, um, the magnetic field of a body while someone was doing out-of-body experience, and the polarity of the body actually switched. And uh, as I put in the book, there's a lot of evidence now that um, not only are we overdue for uh, a magnetic pole shift, but uh, that some scientists are now saying it's actually already started and, and it's underway at the moment. Areas of um, field off South Africa where, where the polarity is already reversed, and they've studied it and done a model in the laboratory where the, um, before a, a reversing of the poles, um, you would get uh, a general lowering in the intensity of the Earth's magnetic field, and that's actually been going on now for about 2,000 years, so they tell us. Uh, plus, you would get these outbreaks of little pockets of um, field reversing before the whole hmm. field shifts, and really? we're also getting that as well. So it looks like one of the components of what might be happening could be um, a magnetic shift of the Earth's magnetic poles. Um, so it's just an idea that, that since they measured this... Um, uh, this shifting, this, this uh, magnetic field of the body when it was out in an out-of-body experience and uh, it was opposed, that there's a conjecture that if the magnetic pole shifts, that might um, make some people go into this experience. Hmm, very interesting. I wonder about dreams. Sometimes I think about dreams, basically, as an out-of-body experience, you know? I wonder how, yes. they, I wonder how they qualify the out-of-body experience. Well, they've also... Um, there's, there's, it, uh, lucid dreams in particular are implicated in this because um, what I found was that there's people who've had all sorts of different uh, altered states of consciousness, and that includes lucid dreaming. Mm-hmm. Well, a lucid dream is uh, a dream which suddenly becomes very real and, and the dreamer becomes aware that they're dreaming. Mm-hmm. And there's um, some people who've done some 
and are still doing research into lucid dreaming. And it splits into two camps, really. Some people regard the lucid dream as a separate phenomenon from an out-of-body experience, and some of the researchers say uh, it's a sort of the same thing. It's a sort of transitory stage towards a full out-of-body experience. Hmm. Um, but what I found is that a lot of people who are having various kinds of altered states of consciousness, including lucid dreams, um, they're coming back with information about 2012, and in many cases they, they had no... Uh, knowledge that it's significant before that. I knew nothing about my calendars or um, or anything about the McKenna time wave or any of these other connections. Uh-huh. Uh, those other kinds of altered states uh, include near-death experiences. At least, what it's doing is, Daniel Banks is the most famous uh, near-death experience. Uh, sure, sure. Was he saved by the light he wrote a long, long time ago? About, he said that in the year... Um, that there will be earth changes leading up to 2012. There will be a massive um, pole shift uh, just just after 2012. And there's been other people like uh, Cassandra Musgrave who um, drowned during a, a water skiing accident. She came back from that experience, came back to life again, and said that uh, she foresaw earth changes and a physics breakthrough and a consciousness change for mankind uh, just around 2012. Hmm. Uh, there's, there's at least three other people and in fact, I was giving a talk on this recently, and uh, amazingly, the guy who was, who was waiting there to give the talk after me started his talk off by saying that he also had had um, a near-death experience, and that uh, he'd then written a book about 2012 after that. No um, but unfortunately, all the information was lost. He lost the only copy of it. Huh. I still got to ask him some more questions about that, and I couldn't talk to him at the time because he's giving another talk. But all these... You've got near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, uh, lucid dreams, uh, remote viewing, people who've had, uh, done remote viewing. Um, so people that have had sacred plants, hallucinogenic uh, brews like ayahuasca and other um, kinds of hallucinogens. Um, and even alien abductees. Also, all these people have had um, these altered states of consciousness. So there's also... People who've, uh, one case I found of someone who's been uh, hypnotically progressed into the future. <laughs> They're all coming back and saying very similar things about 2012, that there are going to be earth changes and consciousness changes. Jeff, um, I, the I, one I... thing that, that all these things have got in common is that they, they're all states of consciousness in which the pineal gland, uh, it's recently been found by Rick Strassman, that the mm-hmm. pineal gland actually... Um, change, uh, puts out a, uh, its own neurochemical, which is, which is actually a, an internally secreted hallucinogen. And um, he's found that at birth, death, and during mystical experiences, he particularly found in the case of um, alien abduction experiences. Well, there's been another researcher in Finland who's found, who's investigated the lucid dreams and several other altered states and found the same results, basically, that our own pineal gland excretes this hallucinogen um, during those mystical states. So all these people that have come back from these mystical states saying things about 2012 have got this connection with this internally secreted hallucinogen. And it's a fact that the pineal gland is very sensitive to minute changes in the Earth's magnetic field. Hmm. So the theory is, again, with a switch in the magnetic field, it could switch on our own internal hallucinogens. Hmm. Uh, and, and then we... That leads back to ecstasy again. Another description, you know, ec- ecstatic voyaging is sometimes used to describe, you know, certain psychedelic trips. Yes, 
that's what I found when I looked into the descriptions of um, a lot of these things on the uh, Aeroid site, which, mm. which talks about uh, hallucinogens. There's a, a huge collection of people's experiences there. And I realized that uh, a lot of these experiences were describing uh, out-of-body states. That's the thing that they all seem to have in common. Yeah, and that's over at, uh, that's a great site, actually. It's Arrowid, E-R-O-W-I-D dot O-R-G. And yeah. uh, they're, they're uh, a tremendous uh, clearinghouse over there of th- that uh, type of uh, information in the psychedelic community. So, all right. So I mean, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that, 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 these, um, that these visions are, have no reality to them because, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people imagine that a hallucinogen um, makes you see things that are not real, which to a certain extent is true. But um, there's also a, a, um, a part of the experience in which people seem to be seeing something that is real on, a, on another level. Hmm. And it's interesting that the, this particular compound that you're talking about, that Rick Strassman uh, did that great book on uh, DMT, that the spirit molecule, I think, was his book. Uh, yeah. But the same exact exact compound that, that the pineal gland seems to produce and secrete in our own system is the same compound that's found in some of these plants, apparently. Yes, dimethyltryptamine. But there's actually there's two other chemicals that are also in that same ayahuasca brew, um, pinoline and 5-MeO-DMT, which are also, it now turns out, produced in the pineal gland as well. Hmm. So there's three, these three chemicals that are in the um, pineal gland, these, these three hallucinogens are also in a lot of these... Um, hallucinogenic uh, plants. Very interesting. Amazing. But the actual, the word, um, the, the chemical uh, pinoline is very similar to, it's in the same group as uh, harmine, mm. which uh, yeah, is the B-carboline group. Um, but the, the molecule is incredibly similar. And harmine was, um, it's in one of the, uh, like it's in Virola, which is in the ayahuasca group. That was first called telepathine when it was discovered because uh, of the telepathic effects that happened to people um, when they were um, under the influence of this thing. It was originally called telepathy? And then they changed to harming when they realized that it had already been discovered and, and isolated from Syrian rue, which is called mm-hmm. Peganum harmala. Huh, amazing. Wow. Okay, well, there, there are other sides to this story as well that, um, that I'm not sure where so many of the different theories uh, that, have, uh, that, have, that have come up have come up from. But, I mean, there are things, Jeff, from, you know, genetic mutations via cosmic rays and, uh, you know, the end of time, uh, an encounter with an asteroid, yeah. you know, all kinds of different uh, ideas. Maybe we can take a short break here and we'll come back and talk about some of the, the many different uh, ideas about possibilities that people think might be uh, coming to bear in the next few years. And then, um, I don't know, maybe we can hash some of them out and, and sort of get an idea of where just in your own personal opinion, you know, where you think things sort of hang. Right, okay. All right, right, cool. We'll do it. We will be back in just a minute. Uh, My guest is Jeff Stray. You can find out information about Jeff on the web at www.mikehagan.com. Just check right there on the front page, and uh, you'll see a link over to Jeff and his website, which is www.diagnosis2012.co.uk. 
right? This website uh, is amazing. There's a tremendous amount of material here, and I've only gotten off uh, to scratch the surface over the last couple of weeks as I've been uh, getting ready to talk with Jeff. But uh, a tremendous amount of uh, information here, and uh, just start at the beginning and start scrolling your way down, okay? All right, it's Mike. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Thanks to the people over there at CosmicWavesRadio.com for getting us live and on the web this afternoon. And to KOPN at www.kopn.org. And uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes, as I said, with Jeff Stray, the author of an amazing book that's called Beyond 2012, Catastrophe or Ecstasy. We'll be back in just a few minutes with him, okay? This is a band called Quetzalcoatl, and the song is called Rising Sun. There you have it. That's Quetzalcoatl. The song is called Rising Sun. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. 
KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, and on the web this Sunday afternoon via www.cosmicwavesradio.com. All right, we've got Jeff Stray on the line uh, with us from his home just south of London. Uh, Jeff, thanks for sticking around with us. Right. Hey, uh, before we get too deeply into this, I want to uh, take care of something off the bat that came up, came up uh, in email just uh, at the break there, Jeff. Yeah. And this this whole business of 2012 is based apparently upon uh, an alignment, an, an, actu- an actual astronomical uh, event that's going to take place apparently uh, in the skies. And uh, yeah. th- th- that's the first question that people seem to have is that, what is this alignment about? How do we know it's real, et cetera, et cetera? Maybe you could address that uh, a little bit really quickly. Right. Well, way back when uh, McKenna wrote the first edition of Invisible Landscape, he did um, quickly mention that around that time, there was uh, it was the time when um, the winter solstice sunrise would coincide with the um, galactic plane. Okay. Um, and John Major Jenkins has taken this research Further and found some incredible connections to um, the Maya mythology and the Maya ball game and the architecture of the ball court and the whole the way the whole thing is set out and the king accession rites um, encoded into all these things uh, are symbols of this what uh, Jenkins calls galactic alignment event. Um, so what it means is it's about the precession of the equinoxes. Right. So. As the sun rises on the horizon, um, if you take, well, in, in this country we talk about it via the spring equinox, when we say precession of the equinoxes, because that is a point on the horizon which is easy to identify every year, and it's the same when the sun rises on the equinox, where the, the day where the night and the day are equal. Right, and there are lots of markers in England uh, that, that, that point to these solar equinoxes and solstices and all this sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. a lot of these sacred sites, the ancient sites built by the ancient Britons, uh, have alignments to the equinoxes and the solstices, okay. as they do in the Maya sites, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All over the world, and, actually, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good way to keep track of the, um, of, the, of the solar year. Okay. But as that sun rises at that point on the horizon every year, the, uh, there's a constellation behind it in the sky uh, the signs of the zodiac, mm-hmm. which are slowly slipping uh, down behind, uh, they're going in, slowly slipping in the opposite direction to which the sun goes across the sky. Right, Hence, right. called not progression but pre precession. Precession, okay. Uh, that uh, when we had the, the musical hair back in the 60s, and they had this song about the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's talking about this this precession of the equinoxes, where the sign of Pisces, which has been uh, behind the sunrise on the equinox for the past 2,000 years or so, that is slowly slipping away and Aquarius is coming into place. So it's the dawning of the age of Aquarius when the equinox sun will rise with uh, the Aquarius constellation behind it. Wow, interesting. And that has meanings for astronomers about pouring out, uh, you know, that Aquarius is pouring out water and it's supposed to mean the pouring out of uh, spirits. And the, the age, a sort of spiritual age coming up. And that was, that's what they meant in the, the hair music, I think. Wow, it's interesting because I think about the the image of the fish uh, as as Pisces, but then also as as an image for Christianity, sort of. Exactly. Yes, the last two thousand years of Christianity uh, symbolized by the fish. Well, the, the zodiac goes um, uh, right back to Egyptian and Babylonian times. Um, so it's very likely that uh, um, Jesus himself was aware of that and maybe uh, encoded that in, into the whole. Um, basis of Christianity. 
Huh. What do you, uh, as far as the length of time of one of these periods, how long does it take for one sign of the zodiac to twist? It's 2,000-some-odd years? Oh, yes, that's right. The, the, the whole of the, for the whole of uh, the zodiac to rotate one time around will take um, just under 26,000 years, about 25,800. 25, okay. So that actual length of time does fluctuate over time. Mm-hmm. But for one sign, that's the twelfth of that, was about 2,160 years. Okay. And uh, for one degree of movement out of the whole 360 degrees, it's uh, just under 72 years. Hmm. And those precessional numbers, including the number 72 in particular, has been encoded into a lot of um, mythologies. All right. Um, yeah, no but doubt. This, the point is that the Maya were, uh, according to Jenkins' incredible research, very scholarly stuff that he put out in uh, Maya Cosmic Genesis 2012. Right. Um, he's shown that they, the Maya were measuring this um, cycle, uh, not from the um, equinox sunrise, but from the winter solstice sunrise. And this um, long count calendar cycle, the 13 back to the cycle, which is the one that ends in 2012, mm-hmm. it started in 3114 BC, and uh, that was on the 11th of August, if you run the Gregorian calendar back that far. Okay. Uh, and it terminates on the 21st of December 2012, which is the winter solstice. Mm-hmm. So it seems that, I mean, the, the archaeologists tell us that there were no Maya or Olmecs who, who the Maya probably got the basis of the system from, uh, that there were none of them around in 3114 BC. So, like us, where we created our calendar and backdated its mm-hmm. um, beginning point, this is what the archaeologists uh, mostly think happened with the, the long count, that they, they backdated their beginning point. But Jenkins has made a good case that the whole thing was um, created by determining the end point first and then working out the beginning point after that. Huh, it's interesting because, you know, you, you, you make the point that we... With the use of the Gregorian calendar, we do go, you know, we do go backward in time. But unlike the Maya, we didn't go forward f- per se. We really don't care very much more than a year ahead or so. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, no. But there is this whole Christian sort of undercurrent about this expected end of the age, mm. uh, which um, seems it seems to be encoded in, in there that it, they expected it. Well, it depends how you interpret it. You see, some people would interpret it that it was expected within the lives of the people that uh, the Jesus was talking to. And then there's another interpretation that it was a bit at the end of the age, and some people thought that was at the end of a thousand years. But then if you're talking about the end of the age as in the zodiacal age, that again is around about now. Mm-hmm. So you could say it's that there's this sort of concept underneath the whole uh, Christian, because, you know, our whole calendar is based on the birth of Christ, and this is what he said about implying that there's an end of uh, an age coming up. Hmm, And it's also encoded into um, Judaism, really, because they have this concept, uh, which is in the Old Testament, about uh, the creation, which was done in seven days. Well, there's a rabbinical interpretation on that, where each of the the days represents 1,000 years. And that's Hmm. actually, it's a couple of places in the Bible, in Psalms and somewhere else, it says the day of the Lord is as a thousand years. Uh So if you then interpret those seven days of creation as a thousand years, you count up all the the, um, the ages of people when they gave birth, all the genealogies that are listed throughout the Old Testament, right, you can work right. out how long ago it was to Adam and Eve. It's around 4000 BC. So we're now, uh, according to that, this is, this is all represented on the seven-branch candlestick, where each, hmm. each stick is a thousand years, and we're now between um, stick six and stick seven. Basically, we're at the end of the 6,000 years, approaching the sort of macroscopic version of Sunday, which is a holy day. Mm. 
and that's called the millennium, the, the sort of... Um, so in other words, this day of rest, the golden age, is like, the, the, is like Sunday on the, on the small scale. It's the, um, uh, the thousand years of peace that's coming up. So that's all encoded into to Christianity and in uh, Judaism. What do we find in Egyptian mythology? Is there any reference to anything that, that, that ties into 2012 from the Egyptian angle? Uh, well, some people have tried to um, find that, but I haven't found that. Uh, what they found hasn't been that convincing to me, really. Hmm. Okay. Uh, in particular, um, uh, Patrick Gerrell and Gina Rattinks have written a couple of, well, of, well, they wrote a book together. I think Patrick Gerrell's just written the second one by himself, um, which does try to, to um, find uh, encoded into the, the Egyptian um, uh, hieroglyphics um, some indication about 2012 but in fact uh, it, it doesn't really hold together really when, when you look at it in detail um, but it, what it did bring up which I wish he'd investigated instead was uh, the the, Zender, the Dendera Zodiacs there are some indications in there although John Lash has shown that, that um, the Circular Zodiac there are some suspicious alignments in it that seem to point to this time now mm -hmm. compared with when it was made uh, and on the, the, uh, they've got rectangular zodiacs at Dendra as well, which um, somebody else pointed out that there are um, several eras encoded into that. So it, a further investigation of that would be very interesting. All right. Well, I guess I'm trying to, uh, to get an idea of other cultures that, that may have pointed this. We talked about the Chinese, that there's something interesting that's embedded in that calendrical system that Terence weaned out of the, out of the I Ching, yeah. We've got the South American reference. Anywhere else uh, on the planet that we know of that points to this place from their own cosmology? Yes. Well, interestingly, one of the most interesting ones that's emerged recently is the, uh, the Maori people of New Zealand. Well, yeah. The... They have a creation myth. Again, whether the creation myth seems to somehow include, as, as did the Maya Popol Vuh myth, which was about um, uh, eras and, and the Aztec myth from sort of creation mm -hmm. uh, and each in the, in the Maya interpretation each era as it ends that's a creation point as well so it's not seen as just an end it's seen as a sort of cycle um, but the Maori creation myth says that, there, that uh, in the beginning there was um, the earth um, Rangi uh, and Papa the two gods were called we had the earth and the sky one was above the other was, was rather one, one was on top of the other the sky was sort of in an embrace with the earth this is actually quite similar to an Egyptian myth of uh, Geb and Nut. Um, but the, the, due to that embrace of the sky and the earth, they had children, and the children pushed their parents apart. And uh, the, the myth goes on that one day when mankind is too distracted um, to notice and remember the old myths anymore, that the, earth, the, the sky will come crashing back down to the earth again. And that they call this Kahinga uh, Tiarai, which means uh, the curtain will fall. <laughs> uh, so that sounds quite catastrophic at first um, interpretation. And one of the young Maoris actually got to uh, get um, curious about this, and he interviewed some of the old Maoris and asked them about it. And it turned out that the actual words um, that, that make up that phrase have mutated since it was first conceived of. And uh, it should really uh, translate as the veil will dissolve. 
a subtle mm. difference, but uh, a very big difference, really. I would say, At yeah. the same time, because the veil, the word they use for veil, is actually the word they also use for when you pass beyond the veil into death. Mm. So it's like somehow the veil between life and death will dissolve and, and this invisible landscape uh, becomes visible. Wow. What do you make about... There was one other one that I was thinking about, the, uh, the India, the Kali cycles in the Indian mythology. Oh, yeah. Well, this is another area that um, John Major Jenkins has looked into, and they have lists of uh, eras in the, the Vedas, some very old books, uh, and they say how long these eras are. The oldest ones are longer, and as they go on, they get newer, uh, shorter, rather. And the last one is called Kali Yuga, and that's the one we're in now. Various people have uh, given different um, sort of interpretations to all this. Uh, I think it was uh, Steiner that said that the, uh, the Kali Yuga began in, in around 3000 BC, which is when the, um, the starting back to the cycle of the Maya began. Right, but, right, right. Um, most people have a different interpretation than that. Well, what Jenkins found was that um, he looked at the work of um, Yuktezwar, uh, and he looked into the Vedas and found that the, 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 these cycles were all added up and came to around 24,000 years. And that, but when you actually added up the individual length, that came to only 12,000. So he came up with a diagram where uh, we, you go down one side, the descending eras, and then you go up the other side, um, sort of like down the darkness and into the light. Uh, but uh, Jenkins has sort of um, modified that to account for what we now know about precession. It all seems to fit very well. That the the, um, the Vedas and these cycles, these yugas, were again based on a measurement of the um, precession of the equinoxes. Um, and it turns out that there are some things they've found. Scientists have found just they found recently that uh, there are some things about this alignment which may actually itself um, have components that, that actually could trigger off these uh, consciousness changes. Um, they found there's a guy called uh, Schnoll who, who did about 30 years of um, investigation. He was just, he was just doing uh, checking on biological reaction rates in test tubes and on proteins and things, watching how long it took for things to uh, happen. Uh, and chemical processes and uh, biological processes. And it was just a, a normal experiment, which he did about 30 years ago for the first time, when he was quite um, new to the whole field. And he should, the ideal graph should have been a bell curve. Mm -hmm. And theoretically, the more, the more experiments you do, the closer that graph should come to that bell curve ideal shape. But uh, he found he, the more experiments he did, he wasn't getting the bell curve. He was getting certain spikes on the graph that seemed to become more accentuated. And he asked his professor, what was this all about? And the professor told him, you're doing too many experiments. <laughs> so, uh, but he, he took it forward and, and collected this um, information over 30 years and recently published it. And it, it turns out that some of these spikes on the graph, which become accentuated, are, and they correspond to a sidereal day, not a normal solar day. And that is a day uh, in relation to the movement of the stars. So mm. what that means is that these biochemical and uh, chemical reaction rates were being affected by the Earth's relationship to the stars. And, of course, our relationship to the Milky Way 
is what this whole galactic alignment process is about. Right, amazing. There's another experiment by someone called uh, Spottiswood who, who um, found he was, was checking for um, psychic abilities in people, and he found that there was a huge leap in uh, psychic abilities in people when the galactic center was rising on the horizon. Huh. And, uh, of course, the, as the sun becomes um, aligned to the... Um, the equator of the Milky Way, it's very, very close to the astronomical galactic center. It's dead on the visual galactic center. It's only since they've had a radio telescope that they know that the astronomical galactic center, which we can't see because it's something like a black hole, uh, is slightly off the, uh, away from the um, actual equator of the Milky Way. But visually speaking, the alignment occurs right in the fat part um, where there's uh, something called the dark rift. Right. It's called the dark rift, the Maya. So Jenkins has found out I referred to it as the mouth of the crocodile or the mouth of the jaguar toad, and that's depicted on a lot of their monuments where the, the solar deity is depicted as being reborn in the mouth of this toad or, um, or, jaguar. or sometimes a snake or um, the crocodile. Mm. So that, that depicts that it was, that's looking forward. All this architecture is looking forward more than 2,000 years into their future to depict something that happened. Um, you know, right, right way, way ahead in future. <clears throat> and a lot of people have found this very difficult to believe. And recently there's been um, some corroboration of it because, um, uh, because some people said, no, that, that's impossible. A uh, non-technological society couldn't possibly um, fix their calendar that far in advance. And there's no, nothing in the inscriptions uh, to corroborate this. Uh, have you heard anything about the Tortuguero prophecy? Uh, no, no, but I know that, that, that Jose Arguez is somehow connected to that. Is that possible? No, no. No. No, I think you're probably thinking of the Telectonon. Oh, yes, that, that, that's, that's right, actually. Why don't you tell us about the... coming up. What is no, this particular... The Tortuguero prophecy is something that is very interesting. It's only just emerged into the public domain uh, this April. Huh. What, um, is it, what is it about? Well... Um, there was uh, uh, an anthropologist called Robert Sittler who wrote um, an essay which was on the internet and put it uh, earlier this year. And it was saying what I just said, that he didn't think um, that there was any basis in the Maya inscriptions for this whole concept uh, of 2012. Mm -hmm. um, well, I got into an email conversation with him about this and... Uh, I told him what I'd already discovered from the Chilam Balam prophecies. These uh, these prophecies were written down just uh, just after the Spanish conquest, but they're supposedly um, passed down by mouth before that. Okay. A uh, Chilam Balam means Jaguar priest. Okay. And so there's several versions of these named after the towns in which they were found. Um, but. Uh, there is some sort of distortion from the Spanish copyists who've inserted, um, you know, Christian concepts. They tried to make it look like the Maya had predicted the coming of Christianity and they were looking forward to it. Right. In fact, right. Uh, they uh, wiped out a lot of people. So, <clears throat> so there's a bit of um, distortion in those, but nonetheless, in um, Maud McKempson's translation of the Jilam Balam of Dizimin, she showed that those prophecies, which are usually taken to refer to what uh, archaeologists call the short count calendar. That's a, because when the Spanish invaded, the long count had fallen out of use, the long count being the one that ends in 2012. Right. Um, they were using a 260 or 256-year calendar. It's 260 tons rather than the 
tons, mm-hmm. which are 20-year periods. They are 260, 360-day years called tons. Okay. So they were using that simpler calendar, and it's thought that the prophecies applied to that. So the ones that are talking about the ending of the 13-ton cycle, which is this short-count calendar, rather than 13 back to the cycle. It's a bit confusing if, if for people who are unfamiliar with all these um, cycle da- um, titles. That is helpful um, to, to get familiar with the, with the calendrics, and there, there are a number of ways to do that. And I'm sure you have links at your site to um, yes, yes. Uh, calendar. Yes, have a Maya links page to help people out with that. Okay, good. Um, but uh, there's indications from, uh, from that Maud McKenzie found that these prophecies in the Chilambalams originally spoke about the end of the 13 Bacton cycle, and they would preserve the prophecies, lost the calendar, and, and applied the prophecies to the new short count calendar. Hmm. Uh, and some of the things that were predicted, I'd already re- um, summed up some of these things on the website, and I told um, Robert Sittler about them, and that just uh, piqued his curiosity a bit more. So he, he made a second inquiry. He'd already made one inquiry amongst the Mayanists as to um, whether there was anything in the inscriptions about the, the end of the long count or the end of the 13 Bacton cycle of the long count. Right. Uh, and it found its way onto a new discussion group at UT Mesoamerica, and this is a discussion group of uh, specialists, uh, Maya specialists and epigraphers, people that translate the glyphs. Mm-hmm. And a guy called Dave Stewart, who's an, an epigrapher, he said, uh, yes, actually there is the Tortuguera Monument 6. Uh, and he then proceeded to uh, trans- give us a fresh translation of it. Really? And uh, it talks about um, the, the return of the gods. It, it specifically mentions 2012, because it, it, what it says is, 13, in, the, in 13 Bacton, 4 Ahau, 3 Kankin. That's, the, that's three calendar dates, basically. The end of the 13 Bacton cycle on the Zolkin day, 4 Ahau, on the Harb day, 3 Kankin. That's an intersection of three calendars telling us it's right at the end of the 30 macro cycle on the 21st of December 2012. And it goes wow. on to say that the, um, the uh, unfortunately, it's a bit damaged, this, um, this um, Monument 6. So it will never be totally um, deciphered for sure. But it's just something, there's a question mark next because we're not sure what the next word was. Something will occur. It will be the descent of the nine support gods to the, and then they're going to come find the last word either, but basically mm. what it's talking about is in 2012 the gods are going to descend. <laughs> Whatever that and means. And this is exactly what, what has been said in the Chilambalan prophecies. It even mentions these same nine gods, who are also seen as one god. So we're here we have a, a fresh corroboration for a straight from the classic era, and this is, this is not post-conquest or anything. Mm-hmm. This is a late classic era that uh, the Maya did look forward and predict things for the end of this starting back society in 2012. And it's interesting that all of these uh, that we've been talking about, Maya and otherwise, they all seem to indicate some sort of raining down from above. You know, it's, it's, it's certainly something that, that the metaphor always seems to be something that's going to come from, from above. Yeah, well, the, um, when the Spanish invaded, they found it so bizarre that the, the things that, that the people already believed there was... Um, been so similar to Christianity in some ways mm-hmm. that this, this sort of um, concept of um, um, well, they, for one thing, it says in the Chilean Blams that they expected the return of uh, Kukul Khan, mm-hmm. who's the feathered serpent god. Right. Right. Um, so they expected the return of a god, 
they uh, they had a they venerated the cross symbol. They had this system of uh, sort of sacrifice, which Christianity had got it symbolically in the in the um, in the uh, communion, mm-hmm. which replaced the original blood sacrifice that the Jews had. Uh, and there's several other um, sort of correlations between the two sets of beliefs, and they they found it so bizarre that they they called it diabolical imitation. They thought that the uh, the devil had been there beforehand to sort of take the mickey out of them all and invent this religion which mocked them. You know, it's and that's why they, they got into destroying all the, what they call the works of the devil, all the, uh, all the codexes, all the writings and uh, yeah. a lot of the monuments and a lot of the people, of course, were, were destroyed. Amazing. You know, it's interesting that, that we see intimations of this stuff in, in all the major religions and whether it's an apocalyptic tone or not, but it's almost like there's sort of a like an unconscious thread that's, you know, that's woven itself through all these different ideologies, and it just, because it's such a big deal, it just pops itself up in different ways, but it, but it can't help but pop itself up. Does that make any sense to you? Or? Oh, yeah. yeah it's, um, I think there's one truth behind all these religions, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just popping up in different ways. There's, even in the... Um, even um, there are some uh, online sites where uh, Islam has also um, taken some of the prophecies from the Bible and used that to predict uh, what they call the, the Day of Wrath or the Day of Judgment uh, also in 2012. Uh, they do that by, um, in the book of Daniel, it talks, uh, there's these numbers where, where it says that the age will last or um, I think it's 1290 days, mm-hmm. and then those who last for 1,334 days, uh, 1260 12, 12, days into 1334, um, is it 30? No, 1290, 1234, um, that they will get to see the end, the end times. And if, so, there's intimations in there that that refers to, well, the the, the sort of is the the Judaism interpretation on that is that um, this refers to the, fir- the time of the first um, mosque that was put on the Temple of Solomon's site. Mm. If, if you take a day as a year in this case, or, um, rather than a day as a thousand years in the other interpretation of the uh, seven-day candlestick thing, uh, then 1,290 years about from the first mosque that was put on the Temple of Solomon's site um, brings us to 1967 when the... Um, the Israelis gained, um, regained Israel. Um, and then 45 years, the extra, the extra that takes you to 1335 takes you to 2012. Because the Islamic interpretation of that would, is slightly different. They would see the, this event that's also spoken of in the book of Revelation, which refers to that. It's um, the abomination of desolation. Of course, to them wouldn't represent the mosque. That would represent the regaining of Israel. And then they, and you just add the 45 years and you again get to 2012. So, which it's incredible too that the two religions have, and it's quite easy to do these two interpretations on these verses as well. They can both get the same endpoint out of it, and it's the same endpoint that everyone else is talking about. Wow, it's amazing, Jeff. Mm. All right, look, uh, we're just about the top of the hour here. Let's take a little break, okay? Okay. All right, everybody, we're uh, talking live with Jeff Stray, and you can find out information about Jeff on the web at www.diagnosis2012.co. Dot UK. And you can also link right over there from MikeHagan.com. 
And this particular broadcast will be up in the archives within the next day or so if uh, you didn't get a chance to listen to it live. There are a few people listening uh, in the chat room, so hello to you guys. And I have written down some questions for Jeff that uh, have been posted either there or an email, and we'll get to those in uh, just a little while here, okay? All right, back in just a few minutes. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, uh, also coming to you this afternoon live on the web via CosmicWavesRadio.com. All right, here's a song by a band called Cross-Eyed, and uh, we'll talk about some of the negative ideas uh, that have to do with 2012 after this song.
Crosside song is called Closer to the End, and we are a little bit closer to the end of this program, but not that far, uh, or not that close, I should say. Uh, it's Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit, it's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, also coming to you live this afternoon on the web via CosmicWavesRadio.com, and my guest this afternoon is Jeff Stray. You can find out information on the web about Jeff at Diagnosis2012.co.uk, and you can link there directly from my site. From here on out, uh, Jeff also has a new book that is uh, available uh, at Amazon now. I think it's been a while, actually, before uh, it's taken a while to get it there. Uh, but the book is called Beyond 2012, Catastrophe or Ecstasy, A Complete Guide to the End of Time Predictions. And uh, with that, we'll bring him right back and say hi. Hey, Jeff. Hi. All right, so yeah, so uh, so your book, Beyond 2012, you mentioned earlier uh, today that uh, it's available on Amazon now. Yes, uh, it, um, I mean, it came out in the U.K. last year, um, about this time last year, and it's been on Amazon.co.uk for a while, but we've only just managed to get it on Amazon.com by getting a, a distributor sorted in the USA. All right, well, congratulations. Uh, I'm very that's happy good. About that. Yeah, that's wonderful. All right, and one more time, the book is uh, is called Beyond 2012. Uh, what's uh, what's the re- response been uh, so far to people who have read it, Jeff? Oh well, I haven't actually had a touch wood. I haven't had a, a negative response yet. But uh, yes, there have been glowing reviews actually, um, some which I just uploaded onto the Amazon site. Uh, and uh, yes, on this um, news group, it seems to be very well appreciated. The news group, which I started, the, the 2012 news. 2012 news, something like that. All right, so I bet you if you you go to Yahoo groups and then go to the search and put in 2012, that'll probably get you pretty close. It should come straight up, yeah. Okay, sounds good. All right, well, look, um, before I get accused of being um, Pollyanna, we have to talk about some of the negative uh, uh, potentials that people uh, are seeing because there are certainly a a band of, uh, well, you know, reasonable people that are saying, wow, this is the end of everything. We're just going to get smashed. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that that, that angle. Yeah, well, I think the, the basis, uh, apart from the fact that our whole concept of, um, well, our own, underneath our, our religion, which is the basis of our, all our society, the, the Christian religion, mm-hmm. we have this sort of unspoken concept that, uh, that there's this judgment day coming up, you see, and that uh, all the, the sinners will be roasted and everyone, uh, well, a few people might make it a mm-hmm. nice place. Uh, and I think this... Um, it's coloured people's interpretation of all this. Uh, obviously, there may there may well be a connection, as I've pointed out. Um, but 
it's funny that you've got this, this heaven and hell concept in the Christian version, but you've also got the, the same, similar concepts woven into the other prophecies of uh, earth changes and consciousness changes. Yes, yes. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of the indigenous um, elders who are now coming out with their actual prophecies are telling us that our own expectations of what will happen will actually affect the outcome. So there is the, the possibility that too much, um, too much pondering on negative, uh, catastrophic scenarios will help to bring those about. So I think that has to be taken into account as well. I mean, I, it's like I, the self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm, scenario. Mm-hmm. So uh, while it's, I don't agree with putting your head in the sand and ignoring what people are saying, it has to be looked at and taken on board and looked at carefully to see, um, you know, if these theories people are coming up with are actually based on anything. Well, uh, during the um, research I've done, I looked at a lot of these theories, and most of them actually can be discounted by uh, poor research, second-hand information that's not quite right, or um, things which just haven't been looked into thoroughly enough, um, and the theory as a result falls to pieces. But people are quite attached to this um, this idea that the world's going to end, because mm-hmm. I mean, not, um, I'm not quite sure why. Part of, let's say, part of it could be this tie in the whole um, Christian concept mm. uh, in some cases. But uh, of these catastrophe theories, um, one or two of them are quite well thought out, and uh, one of those. Uh, I mean, you're having Jay Whedon on tomorrow, so you can ask him more about this. But you know, he um, he did a lot of work researching this cross at Henday. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, in the Pyrenees, there's this cross built way back in the 1500s or 1600s, um, built by uh, alchemists encoding alchemical information. And uh, the, the alchemist Fulcanelli put out a book in about 1926 um, about. Uh, the mystery of the cathedrals, it was called. But there, uh, in, in a later edition, I think it was 1956 or 57 edition, there was an extra chapter in the back about this cross. Mm-hmm. And um, from what he's written there, um, Jay Weiner went on to do a lot of research on it with Vincent Bridges, and um, they found uh, that it seems to encode a 20-year period again, leading up to 2012, using the four tarot, the four last tarot trumps of the major arcana. Um, that's right. Uh, from, as from sort the, of major um, clues as to what it's talking about. No, no from the tarot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it seems to encode something about um, encoded onto it. There's this um, Latin inscription which says "O crux arvis spenders bezunica," which means uh, "Hail to the cross, our only hope." Uh, now, there's something weird about the way that's written. It's, uh, the S that uh, begins one of the words has been deplaced so that the, the, the central X in, in crux is directly underneath another X at the top. Um, but it also, that made them look for anagrams in it, and they ended up finding some anagrams um, which seemed to indicate that the cross was pointing to Peru mm. and a place called Urcos in particular, in Peru, which they hadn't even heard of at the time. They then went to Urcos, they found a place called Urkost, and uh, they went there, and there has been a cross there. Unfortunately, it's been destroyed, so if there's anything encoded on that, they won't know. But there's a church in Urkost, and um, that uh, I found that there's some work by uh, a couple of women who've done some uh, initiation work in, with the, um, the indigenous people that live up in the mountains of Peru, and uh, 
they found that this, uh, this ERCOS is a very important place in their prophecy, which is also about 2012. Um, and what they say is that uh, this was uh, a man called Juan Nunes del Prado who's, uh, who um, originated this information. He's worked with the last of the great um, me medicine men, or um, pacos as they're called, the sort of priests of the Kero tribe, so okay. way up in the Andes. Mm -hmm. um, and he was told that there's this prophecy, this Pachacuti prophecy, uh, of the world turning over. Oh, well, it's it's called a, a pacha is actually word, their word for the world, but it also, like the, the Aztecs uh, and the Maya and the, um, uh, the Hopi, they, their word for world also means a world era, a time as well as the actual world itself. So it's a turning over of time and a turning over of, of possibly, it depends which way you interpret it. Um, I mean, you could interpret that as a, as a reverse of the poles, I suppose. As mm -hmm. well. Certainly. But anyway, this Pachacuti prophecy, when uh, they came to his door, the, the, the remaining um, Parkers came to Juan's front door in about 1990 and told him that, um, that the, the prophecy started then. And there's this series of, of developments in the prophe prophecy. Um, where, and when you run through those um, a little amounts of years of preparation and manifestation, and then you get the actual um, the era, the Golden Age, Tope Pacha, which means the age of meeting ourselves again, or the Golden Age, mm that it turned out uh, is due on about the 1st of August 2012, according to, the, to this Ashikuti prophecy. But the second half of the prophecy goes that there will be this, uh, they have this uh, Colliriti festival way up on a glacier, right up on the mountains every year, and out of this celebration will come some priests. Uh, and the first priest of the next level, that this is like, I mean, I'm sort of digressing a bit here. No, 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 it's good, it's but, good. Uh, the first priest that comes out of this um, will be a fifth-level priest. There are only fourth-level priests at the moment. Right. He'll be the first and the fifth-level priest, and then he'll go straight to Urkos Church, where, of course, you have another cross, uh -huh. and then he'll meet the second priest, and then go on this pre-designated route, collecting five male and five female priests, who will then collect at the Temple of Viragocha at Rakchi, do another ceremony, and out of that will come the first two people of the sixth level. So they're like called the shining ones, the, the Incas themselves. Uh -huh. the, the, uh, a sort of like a, the next stage of evolution. Mm -hmm. um, so that seems to all fit in with what Jay uh, and Vincent found on the on the cross at Hende. But they also found encoded into this was uh, there seemed to be a, a double catastrophe. And then they found out about the work of Paula Violet, right. who is this uh, astrophysicist. Yeah, I know Paul. He's been on my show before. Yeah. yeah. He says that, that we're expecting this galactic core explosion with a huge, um, that happens every so now and again, which he himself has linked into the precession of the equinox cycle. And uh, that, that, that we're sort of due for this blast wave uh, coming out from galactic center. Uh, although in uh, emails to me, it seemed that he wasn't that sure that it would be the major one. It might be a more of a minor version of it. Would we just get um, um, a minor pulse? Mm -hmm. um, but that did that did fit in because that's a sort of dual catastrophe, uh, where we get a sort of uh, wave of sort of one bunch of waves, and then you get a load of cosmic dust coming after that. It's a sort of dual effect thing, which seems to fit in with the. Yeah, the Hende process. The Hende stuff, yeah. Well, it's interesting because I've, Paul's work is amazing, actually. The guy's brilliant. Uh, mm. And certainly, he, I think that he's been able to prove 
that these things happen. And, uh, you know, he, he looks at iridium and all kinds of rare elements and ice core samples and that sort of thing. But I'm interested in the effects of uh, light, you know, and I think that I, I think of the central sun of our galaxy as basically, you know, just a, a scaled up version of, of the sun that's right uh, burning you know, in our own solar system here, and I always, yeah. and I always think, of, you know, that it, that it cuts both ways. That that we need that light to survive, and that it can actually be a wonderful thing. And at the same time, you know, it can be destructive if if it gets overwhelming. You know. Well, there's this whole concept of the photon band, <clears throat> which you may have heard of, which has been going since the early 70s or the late 60s. Um, which keeps coming up in, uh, through people who do channeling mm-hmm. and as being associated with 2012. But um, what it says just doesn't scientifically add up because right. it talks about the, uh, the solar system revolving around, um, around the Pleiades. Hmm. But uh, the components of that myth actually do, if you take the components, the components of the myth can actually be broken down into important part things that are true but they just it's like it's been jumbled up and put together wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Paula Violet has said that that can be taken as sort of an allegory or a, um, a metaphor for uh, the galactic core explosion. But uh, from what I've seen, it seems to fit much better to uh, Alexei Dimitriev's theory. Ah, um, yeah. Have you heard anything about him? Yeah, in fact, I, 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 just, I just was typing in my search engine here, planetophysical, because I know it's the only place I've ever seen that word before. Uh, but yeah, he's a, he was a Russian uh, scientist that worked for the Russian Academy of Sciences, and he's amazing. Yeah. Yes. Well, he's um, he's looked at um, changes through not only on the Earth. I mean, as you know, we're already getting uh, weather changes, as if we're you know we're in denial to say something isn't happening because <laughs> of the, the weather changes on the Earth and everything. Uh, well, we're also looking at changes on the Sun as well. They're getting mm-hmm. more and more. Um, the scientists are confirming more and more that uh, not only are they um, they're seeing change on the sun, they haven't seen that they've been monitoring it, but um, they're also now saying that the the, uh, the next polar uh, magnetic shift, you know, the, uh, you get the cycle on the sun where the poles reverse mm-hmm. and that, the sunspot cycle. Mm-hmm. The next one being due in 2012, they're expecting that uh, to be record-breaking um, solar storms along with it. That's right. I re- so you've got I read these that. changes not only on the Earth and the sun, but Demetrius brought out into the public domain the fact that we've got changes uh, in the weather and the magnetic fields uh, of the planets throughout the whole solar system. And he found some um, uh, results of some Russian probes that have been sent out and it turns out that on the edge of the heliosphere, that's where the edge of the, uh, of the solar system where it's going through interstellar space, there's a huge build-up of uh, plasma, which is uh, magnetized. Oh, well, plasma is, is um, a gas where it's, all the ions have been stripped off. So it's, it's called the fourth state of matter because it, it's sort of beyond gas. You've got right, solid liquid right, right. gas and then plasma. It's like it's magical stuff that go, can go through solid objects. And... Uh, this is, we see ball lightning as a form of plasma, and lightning itself is a sort of high-energy plasma. And um, you've got uh, um, the northern lights are a, um, a form of plasma as well. But um, Dimitri has pointed out we're getting more and more of these plasma weather effects in the in the um, in, in this environment uh, that surrounds the Earth, and he's connecting that with and all the changes in the uh, throughout the whole solar system in, in weather and magnetic changes. He's connecting that with the this build-up of plasma on the edge of the heliosphere, and he says we must be going into 
a sort of magnetized plasma rich area of interstellar space. So you could look upon that, I mean, if you take away the, the photon uh, being light itself of the photon band, that we are, you could say that that's an allegory for us going into this magnetized plasma band itself, which um, Demetrius says he studied, um, he called these, these uh, plasma balls, he calls them vacuum domains, because mm -hmm. they, there's one type which occur in the center of tornadoes where there's a vacuum, and uh, you get these incredible um, miraculous effects after tornadoes have passed where they, they found that um, straw has been embedded in window glass and, um, and pebbles have passed through glass without breaking it, things that right. actually seem right. to be against the laws of physics. Um, well, um, I mean, one of those near-death experiences said that the laws of physics were, uh, well, no, it was... Somebody came out with a prediction mm. saying they thought that, that they foresaw a change in the laws of physics or a new understanding of the laws mm. of mm. physics in 2012. Well, could it be associated with these, these, the side effects of this build-up of plasma? Um, Dimitrius said that this is going to also um, bring about a change in the consciousness of mankind. So it also seems to fit into the, to the whole consciousness change interpretation on, on what's going on here. Well, I tell you, Jeff, um, I've, I've wanted to do this for a while on the show, and I haven't done it, so I'm going to read uh, just the summary paragraph real, real quickly just to get it on the record here of, of what we're talking about, because I think it really is an important paper that didn't get uh, much traction here in the West. But anyway, this, this is, it's real brief. Uh, it is a paper that is called The Planeto Physical State of Earth and Life by Dr. Alexei Dimitriev. Oh, yes. It yeah, was... Yeah, it was published in uh, Russian in 1997. He's a professor of geology and mineralogy and the chief scientific member of the United uh, Institute of Geology and Geophysics and Mineralogy at the Russian Academy of Sciences, etc., etc. And here's the summary paragraph. Current planetophysical alterations of the Earth are becoming irreversible. Strong evidence exists that these transformations are being caused by highly charged material and energetic non-uniformities in anisotropic interstellar space which have broken into the interplanetary area of our solar system. This donation of energy is producing hybrid processes and excited energy states in all planets, as well as the sun. Effects here on Earth are to be found in the acceleration of the magnetic pole shift, in the vertical and horizontal ozone content distribution, and in the increased frequency and magnitude of significant catastrophic climatic events. Sound familiar, everybody? Uh, there is growing probability that we are moving into a rapid temperature instability period similar to the one that took place 10,000 years ago. The adaptive response of the biosphere and humanity to these new conditions may lead to a total global revision of the range of species and life on Earth. It is only through a deep understanding of the fundamental changes taking place in the natural environment surrounding us that politicians and citizens alike will be able to achieve balance with the renewing flow of planeto physical states and processes. Mm. Wow. And then, you know, I mean, and then you start digging into this paper, and it is deep, and it's, it's referenced well, and, uh, you know, you can you can tear it apart, I think, but but it's pretty solid. This guy's really on to something. And this was eight going on nine years ago now. Yeah, I haven't seen anybody who's... Um done a critique on that or anything. Uh, well, I, ignored, like you say. It is amazing. I'm so glad you brought it up because I actually mentioned it off the air to John uh, Jenkins um, uh, last Monday night, and I sent him the link to this uh, to, to the paper, and I'm glad you brought it up because I've been talking about it with a friend of mine online for a few years, and, and the fact that it just never seems to uh, get the light of day, and it is a really solid scientific paper, you know. 
At any rate, okay. they found with these um, these balls of light. There's been some research done that show uh, that shows that, that these could be looked upon as an actual uh, sort of transient life form. That huh. they're actually showing a lot of the, the signs of life, although it's very short-lived in most of the cases of these um, balls of light. Uh, they've actually made them in the laboratory, and they they're they're actually beginning to look at them as a sort of transient life form. Amazing. I'm sorry, uh, another weird thing about those, um, <clears throat> perhaps more controversial still, about this plasma is, um, uh, I don't know what you think about crop formations, crop circles. Well, that's a question that came up on the, uh, in the chat, actually, that I was going to, uh, I was going to uh, ask you uh, if, if you see a connection in crop circles. So let's... let's well, you know, yeah, okay, well... What about, um, and, and maybe you could add, uh, you may or may not be familiar, but there's a, uh, a gentleman, his name is Daniel Pinchback, I think, who's written... Yeah, I know him, yeah. M- maybe you could, I, I think he's written a little bit about the crop circle. I don't know a lot, but maybe you could, if, if that makes sense to tie him in, maybe you could mention him. So. Yes, yes. Well, a lot of his uh, theory, uh, his, he's got the crop circle on the front of his book. Yeah, it's a beautiful book, the cover of it. It is, yeah. Um, although most of his... Uh, that he's um, bringing in the crop circles into this. I mean, I quite agree with him, but uh, it's mostly based on one crop circle, and that was uh, it's a grid which appeared in a place called Etchell Hampton in Wiltshire in 1997, and uh, it's a sort of grid of um, there's 780 squares in this grid. It's 26 by 30, 780, and that happens to be um, exactly the same as three Zolkins. The Zolkin is the sacred calendar of the Maya. Right, right again, the Maya. Um, yeah. And uh, three Zolkins is 780 days, 260 days each. Um, but also close to that was another uh, crop formation, which it seemed at the time could have been interpreted as, um, you know, uh, the, the magnetic fields of the sun. Mm. But, uh, more, perhaps more relevant is the fact that 780 days is the period of the um, sidereal period. No, the... Um, well, no, but the, basically a Martian year is 780 oh, days okay, uh, from yeah. looked at from the Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, uh, the Maya were actually tracking the period of Mars, and there, that 780-day period is recorded in the Dresden Codex. But, um, uh, so that was one connection. But what Michael Glickman, who's a crop circle researcher, said at the time, he looked at this and said uh, there are... Um, it's 26 by 30, so they said there's 52 weeks in a year, so six months is 26 weeks. You multiply by that by 30, and you've got 15 years, and that was the time between when it appeared and 2012. So he thought oh. that the whole thing was connecting up to 2012. Uh-huh. And there have been several other crop formations that seem to have encoded uh, Maya calendar cycles. In fact, almost every year since 1997, possibly with the exception of this year, which nobody's really come up with a definite one for this year yet. We were kind of down on circles this year in the UK because um, they, they say that their theory is that it's um, due to the, the, water, the low water table because what they found in the investigating of these formations, which has been done by a group um, in uh, Michigan, uh, BLT, they're called Bur- not bacon, lettuce, tomato. We're talking uh, yeah, Bur- good and tall. Bur- yeah, Levengood, yeah, Dr. Levengood, sure. Uh, a man, Levengood, has, has spent his whole life studying cereal crop. When he started being sent in the early 90s, people started looking at crop formations and sending him samples, and he saw changes which he'd never seen in his whole career. Mm-hmm. And that started up this um, group 
which has been looking at these things ever since, BLT. And um, they've been finding changes which are not explicable by um, people going around fields with planks. <laughs> I mean, we, are, we have definitely got a lot of people hoping crop formations now, um, but uh, they're not by any means all explicable uh, as hoaxes, although they have got much better at doing it since the early days. Yeah, they got GPS assistance now, you know. Yeah, but anyway, what BLT, um, after several years of looking at these changes, the most famous of which is um, exploded nodes, where the, uh, it, something has heated up the stalk from the inside, uh -huh. and the nodes, the lump on the stem, is where there's much moisture, and it's exploded there, and the moisture and the sap has come out. So they call that expulsion cavity or ex exploded nodes. Okay. That's just one of the changes. There's lots of other changes, uh, like um, changes in germination, um, they found they've taken it's all been done very scientifically mm -hmm. with um, control samples and all taken at, um, at intervals across the formation and it's all been written down and everything uh, but they found that yes towards the middle the, the length of the nose gets bigger towards the middle of the formation which is consistent with an electromagnetic source above it having uh, like a light bulb shining down more intensely in the center and not so much around the outside okay. they, they've also found there's um, um, mag magnetized, um, magnetic sort of melted magnetic meteorite particles more concentrated in the formation than anywhere outside it. Mm. They found germination changes, which were either um, an increasing, incredible increase in germination, boosted growth, or totally infertile. Huh. Now somebody has since then, as I heard, has presume, presuming that, that that microwave energy is involved, which is what the, the um, team came to the conclusion that microwave is involved in this somewhere. Somebody has now patented a method of, of uh, boosting seeds so that they, uh, this is in patent now, I believe, uh, so you can actually buy these seeds that have got boosted germination rates and that, that was discovered from uh, crop formation. They claim to have discovered Euclid's uh, lost theorem and um, Alan Brown's done, made some amazing discoveries about squaring the circle all by studying the geometry of crop formations. So there's some incredible things that have been found found out by looking at these, but what BLT said was that they thought uh, it, whatever was doing it involved microwave energy, because it's been heated, heated up in a, in a microsecond and flash heated. Uh, it involved a swirling effect. Um, it involved um, uh, so, well, they said they found that a lot of these, about 90% of these things occur on um, certain kind of geology, which is called aquiferous geology, where you've got an aquifer, which holds a lot of water, and then that, as the water trickles through the ground, this is chalk, limestone, green sand, you get an electrical charge. So like with lightning, which is a form of plasma, um, uh, shorting out to where there's, uh, easy, it's easily earth, like um, uh, water, um, this, these kind of aquiferous geologies would, would so the theory goes, would attract a low-energy a low form of plasma, mm -hmm. which has got all these qualities, because they found recently that there's these things called sprites, which come down from the ionosphere, and they're like right, right, right. tubes of plasma, low-energy kind of plasma, uh -huh. which are above thunderstorms, that's where they've observed them so far. But if there was something like that, a tube of plasma coming down, it would have a rotational component, a microwave component, a magnetic component, and uh, it seems to explain a lot of these effects. So interesting thing is we've got this, according to Dimitri, we've got this massive build-up of plasma, and, yet, and we've got this uh, increasing 
crop circle phenomenon as well, which is also tied into plasma. Yeah, it's, it seems, though, that there has to be some sort of energy, I mean, some sort of intelligence directing it, though, to get, you know, some of these fractal patterns and stuff. Oh, exactly, yes. That's, that's the one thing that the BLT couldn't explain. They could explain, um, uh, because Terence Meaden originally came up with a theory that, uh, called the plasma vortex theory, but um, he kind of gave up on that because it was very weather-dependent. But right, right. BLT sort of take that further and saying this must be a new kind of plasma phenomenon to fit into all these um, criteria. I mean, maybe, and maybe they could explain it all with uh, as one of these sort of plasma tubes, but it would have to be, in order to make an intelligent pattern, it would have to be manipulated by an intelligence. Right. But right. the discovery that these that these these balls of light have been seen associated with crop formations and they've, they've been filmed around crop formations. And I've met people who've actually had to do an emergency stop. They've, in Wiltshire, people do go out on night watches looking for things, these things. Uh, and then where they've seen them, there's very often crop formation the next day. But I know people who've had to do an emergency stop when one of these things bounced in front of their car. <laughs> and another woman, a farmer there, had one come through her kitchen window, right through the glass, and, and go around the kitchen. <laughs> Uh, but the discovery by these scientists, I mentioned that these things are now being seen as a transient life form. Uh, in other words, it's an intelligence that could connect itself in certain weather conditions to these plasma balls right. and can then affect reality through the plasma. Right. So and it seems to be an explanation. Right, and perhaps the, uh, the geology is just something that's necessary, you know, in, in order for them to complete the trick or whatever. Yeah. Amazing. And it, the amazing thing is that a lot of these areas are also... Um, close to ancient sites mm-hmm. as well. So people, um, the fact is that, uh, that you've got these people who've doused these ancient sites have found these energy lines and strange uh, energy anomalies associated with them. Uh, and they could also be associated with the, the underground water. So it could be the same, uh, a similar sort of reason mm-hmm. for why the sacred sites are in these same areas as why the, uh, the crop circles are appearing. Amazing. Wow. Very interesting, Jeff. Hey, um, I got one more question regarding crop circles, and it may or may not be one that you can answer, but a, a listener asks, Mike, please don't forget to ask Jeff about the Silbury Hill crop circle. Is, <laughs> is that a particular... I'm, I'm not familiar with that one. <clears throat> well, yeah, this is a bit of a controversial one, actually. Um, this was 2004 at Silbury Hill. It's, it was, in fact, the best-looking crop circle of the whole season, really. It was, you know, everybody was crazy about it. it they... Uh, some people were calling it the Mayan wheel, but that's confusing because they'd already called an earlier one that. But um, it seemed to be a pair of wings surrounded by, um, well, right around the edge of this wheel were, were some um, some of these little um, G symbols, which, um, as John Major Jenkins has pointed out, the G symbol uh, in this way, where they're both mirrored against each other. Uh, represent the, to the Maya represented jaguar snouts and that, that jaguar snout symbol was always above a depiction of Shibalba which is the, um, the entry or portal to uh, the, the, rather it's the, the road to Shibalba which is a black road uh, which is the, the way to the underworld the shamans would travel down this to visit the ancestors and uh, in the sky this was represented by the dark rift which is where this alignment is taking place so um, but most people were familiar with this G symbol from the writings of Humbat's um, Men, who is a modern Maya daykeeper, who says that the G symbol represents um, the uh, Milky Way galaxy. Well, uh, 
I don't know if I... <coughs> it's a bit controversial to disagree with what the data um, uh, is saying, but yeah. some of what they're saying is influenced by what modern researchers are saying. Uh, that's undoubted. But um, anyway, putting that aside, that really is the only um, connection. It's just that the fact is that the archaeologists are not totally in agreement on that, the fact that those G symbols represented the, the Milky Way to the Maya. That's the point, you see. Um, no, okay, yeah. did it, well, maybe, but uh, we don't have a lot much proof of that. Okay. But um, that was really the only connection that connected that crop circle to the Maya calendar. Um, somebody linked it to the press. There's a Mayan crop circle, and then it became a, a headline in one of the major daily newspapers <laughs> over here. Uh, Doomsday crop formation. Wow. And this, this crop formation means the end of the world's coming in 2012. Hmm. It makes good uh, newspaper headline. That's right. They like and to then sell it. Somebody then wrote a, um, an essay about it, which they put on the Crop Circle Connector website, someone called C. Lewis. And uh, the Swirled News website asked me to check it out and see if what he was saying was true, because he was saying encoded in all these little lines around the edge uh, was the fact that the world's going to end in 2012. Uh -huh. So... Uh, I looked at what he said, and I found several errors and misunderstandings about the Maya calendars, and I put a critique up there on the Swirl News side about it. And then the following year, we had, uh, last year, 2005, we had a couple more and a, uh, that seemed to have Maya connections, again, with this, these G symbols all around the edge. And, um, again, C. Lewis then put up another essay saying, uh, explaining how these all indicate the same things, but he then modified them slightly to uh, agree with the criticisms that I got in the previous in the essay oh. in the previous year. Right. Again, I, I put up another critique, uh, knocking down a lot of what he said. But I had to agree that one of these formations did include include some Maya calendar numbers: thirteen, twenty, uh, and four. Well, four thirteens are fifty-two. So these are major um, numbers in the Maya calendar. Right. But that really was all you could say. I, I didn't find any way of saying, uh, seeing uh, 2012 encoded in it or that that meant the world was going to end. You see, people do love to read these things in. Um, the guy called him, who made, wrote those essays, called himself C. Lewis again in the, this year. And then in another article on another site, he called himself the Australian scientist. <laughs> and uh, I found out from somebody that these are, um, these are definitely the same person. <laughs> um, He's sort of, it's a pen name connecting him up with C.S. Lewis. He put mm -hmm. the title of one of C.S. Lewis's books there. Uh -huh. And it's, a, it's some sort of sign that, that he's connecting himself somehow with the, uh, the uh, Christian author C.S. Lewis. Hmm. Interesting. Well, it's, it's weird. The, the way the web allows anonymity, you know, it's, you never know really who's doing what. And I've had some real interesting uh, experiences over the last month and a half or so on my own website. Uh, and it's disturbing on the one hand and frustrating but at the same time uh, I think it's just uh, you know the cost of doing business these days sort of what do you mean exactly well <laughs> hackers and trolls and troublemakers and oh, really? uh, you know just uh, and, and people trying to push negative messages you know yeah well I've had uh, I've had two computer meltdowns actually and you know, I get worried that I was getting targeted but I don't know if that's paranoia or what I don't know but, it's uh, uh we, we I haven't had any hardware problems but sure we've 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 had the the website uh, under just almost constant attack for the last month it's been amazing 
And so, anyway, you wonder if it's just somebody messing around or if it's somebody that's, uh, you know, got an agenda or if they're being told to do it. But but you can't worry about it. Just keep doing what you do, you know. So, mm. anyway, look, uh, we are at about 137 or so. Let's take a short break. We'll come back and talk a little bit more, okay? Okay. All right, everybody, let's do it. Uh, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Uh, my guest, Jeff Stray. Very interesting information coming from across the Atlantic Ocean over there. You can find out information about Jeff on the web at www.diagnosis2012.co.uk, and you can link there directly from my site at mikehagan.com, of course. And uh, Jeff's new book is called Beyond 2012, Catastrophe or Ecstasy? And we'll talk more with Jeff in just a few minutes about his book and about uh, this whole 2012 phenomenon that is really just... uh, sort of taking off and uh, love it or hate it, embrace it or despise it. It's something that's uh, becoming a big force in the in the cultural field, it seems like. And I can't imagine it doing anything but getting more and more powerful over the next few years. So we're going to keep our eyes on it and keep talking with people like Jeff and John and, uh, and Jay and anybody else who's interested in this sort of stuff. So, all right, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. And we'll play another song here by Resonant Sun. The song is called Mystical Column. We'll be back in just a few minutes. One more time on the web at MikeHagan.com. Thanks to KOPN for making this broadcast possible. You can find out information about KOPN on the web at KOPN.org. And, of course, Cosmic Waves Radio for making it live on the web, www.CosmicWavesRadio.com. I reside in the center of the mythical column. I solemnly swear to make art with the given air. I breathe a weak balance. Like Adam and Eve, polar opposite. But what is the cause of it? Some people call it the Hunab Koo. It spits out a vibe like a didgeridoo. It emanated me as well as you. Your mama and your whole damn breakdance crew. Yo, what the devil gonna do when he makes a move? Try to separate me from the frequency. You gotta be free in harmony. Align your spine with the galaxy Excite your light capacity Then enter to the center heart energy You hear a rainbow MC currently But I'm only one moment in eternity I reside in the center of the mystical column I solemnly swear to make art with the given air I breathe a weak balance Like Adam and Eve, polar opposite But what is the cause of it? The mystic column depicted by 20 tribes From a niche at the bottom all the way to the sunny side A.K.A. Thank you. 
Mystical Column. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. All right, it's a special Sunday afternoon webcast. My guest is Jeff Stray, uh, joining us from his home south of London in the United Kingdom. And uh, we appreciate Jeff spending his uh, Sunday evening with us. Jeff, thanks for sticking around. Okay. Hey, uh, uh, here's a question for you. Yeah? How, if, uh, if in any way, do you see technology fitting into this whole thing. You know, we, we touched on Terrence and Dennis a little bit earlier, and Terrence, uh, on the one hand, I know, uh, was really interested in the effects of, of technology uh, with regard to this whole change that might be imminent. Well, do you mean, if, for example, that you could look at the Internet as a sort of um, developing neural network that connects people together ready for a, um, the awakening of a global brain? Certainly, that was one thing that he, th- I think that the Internet was a, uh, a big part of uh, uh, his vision, yeah. Well, that fits in very well with um, the theory of Peter Russell. He pointed out that we have, uh, there's 10, 10 to the power of 10, that's 10,000 million um, molecules in the human neuron, and there's 10,000 million neurons in the human uh, neocortex, <laughs> and we're now past 10 to the 9, approaching 10 to the 10 people on the planet, and this is some sort of... Um, critical mass at which the individual uh, components stop, they lose their individuality and they become parts of a larger organism or a larger organ. So we're all heading towards the point where uh, this critical mass happens and we start to behave like uh, global, human global neurons in in an emerging brain. Fascinating. You could look at the the internet as a kind of uh, physical correlate of a um, a neural network connecting people up, but I tend to interpret it more, that, that neural network, more on a sort of telepathic level, really. Hmm. Because, um, you know, what I said about the penaline and the telepathine, which right. is the thing which is actually going to, so it seems, be triggered by the magnetic um, fluctuations that we're um, getting towards now. Right, right, right. And for those of you who... who uh are just joining us or, or didn't catch us right at the beginning of the program. We'll talk more about that, Jeff. I think that's one of the most important uh, uh, observations that you've made. And, and I, this, this whole idea of the endogenous molecules, the endogenous substances inside the human system that are somehow connected to dreaming and out-of-body states and uh, shamanic voyaging and all this other stuff, I think that that is an important uh, angle to take a look at again. So uh, we'll go there in just a second, but let me ask you another question here. You mentioned briefly earlier the Hopi. Maybe we could mention a little bit about how the Hopi uh, cosmology ties into this. I know they have the Blue Star Kachina story. Oh, yeah, this is very interesting. Um, They have this ceremony 
Uh, well, perhaps first I should um, explain the, um, uh, the, the, the new fire ceremony of the um, Aztecs okay. and the Toltecs. They had this uh, ceremony every 52 years because you've got the 260-day calendar and you have the 365-day calendar, that's the Zolkin and the Harb. When you're born, you get uh, your birth date. Uh, you have a, a, a Zolkin day of birth, a day in that calendar, and a day in the Harb calendar. It takes 52 years before you get that combination come up again. Hmm. Uh, in fact, it's actually 13 days before your 52nd solar birthday because they don't have leap, leap days in the Harb calendar. Right, right. So that's when you uh, would become an elder. Of course, uh, um, America, it just still seems becoming... Uh, in, in the indigenous people, you're seen as becoming an elder around 52. Um, so if they found that the Toltecs and the Aztecs, who were later um, civilization, had this ceremony every 52 years uh, called the New Fire Ceremony. Uh, and because the Aztecs, it got quite gory and they did a lot of sacrifices. But what they also did was they went up on top of a hill uh, just outside the town called the Hill of the Star and they looked up in the sky to see if the Pleiades was overhead at midnight. If the Pleiades wasn't overhead at midnight, they celebrated that the world wasn't going to end and then they would do all their sacrifices. Mm -hmm. Well, John Major Jenkins has sort of decoded what this means. And interestingly, you could look at this as being part of what the, what the actual um, the concept of the photon band is all about because that includes the Pleiades in its uh, concept. Mm -hmm. But... Um, what Jenkins said is that they were checking procession. This was from um, the sort of Toltec areas north of the fire, and they had their own method of checking on procession um, because uh, just after about... What they were doing was checking the um, conjunction of the Pleiades with the Zenith Sun because exactly six, um, exactly, uh, six months after they did this check was, was the day of the zenith passage of the sun over the top of their city there and that's in the tropics where the sun passes directly overhead and you get no shadows on that day mm -hmm. um, they were checking to see if the Pleiades, uh, how, how much closer the Pleiades was getting to conjuncting the zenith sun but of course you can't check that in the daylight so they had to check it uh, in the dark uh -huh. or at midnight right. and um, we, it turns out that we are the, the, the Toltecs took this knowledge down when they moved down to the Yucatan Peninsula and they uh, built the Pyramid of Kukulkan, which is the Maya word for Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent. Uh, they built this pyramid and they encoded all this cosmology into it and combined it with the Maya endpoint because uh, this pyramid at um, um, Chichen Itza, it has 91 steps on each side yeah, four sides, that's 364, plus the top step, 365. So it tells you it's a, um, it's a, calendar. a calendrical device. Right. And then it turns out that every spring equinox, you get this shadow play on it where it appears that this Quetzalcoatl or Kukulkan, this feather snake, is wriggling down the pyramid. As the sun goes across the sky, it makes mm -hmm. shadows enhanced by big stone snakeheads on the bottom. And Jenkins realized that, that all this is based on the Quetzalus Jurisus rattlesnake and the pat knot on it is uh, it crops up all over the place in uh, Mayan art and architecture right, it's, it's but a, the actual rattle on the snake is called Zab and in the Yucatec Maya language that also means Pleiades huh. and there's also a little marking just near the tail which is exactly like the Mayan a house symbol 
which means uh, sun. Huh. So basically encoded into this snake wriggling down this pyramid was a, a conjunction of the sun with the Pleiades. And uh, 60 days after this happens every year, you get the day of the Zenith, Zenith passage of the sun over the top of this pyramid. And there's a 72-year time window in which the Pleiades is conjuncting the Zenith sun right over the top of this pyramid. And that was... Um, that 72-year time window has 2012 right at the centre of it, and on the, uh, the 20th of May 2012, we will have a, the Pleiades conjuncting the sun on the day of a solar eclipse right over the top of this pyramid. Wow. So the whole thing is like a stone alarm clock, uh, which is based on the, um, the Aztec new fire ceremony. Sorry. <coughs> that's and that's where the Hopi come in, because um, the Hopi people have this ceremony every year, not every 52 years, but every year, and they hold it in a kiva, which is an underground chamber. Mm-hmm. And they hold it in November, which was the time when the Aztecs did their ceremony in, um, in the north of Mexico. The Hopi also say that the Aztecs were an aberrant Hopi tribe. In other words, they see themselves oh. as connected uh-huh. uh, genetically with them. Um, so there's that connection. Plus, this, this uh, ceremony, which they have in the kiva... They call it the uh, Wubuchim ceremony. And during this ceremony, there's a there's part of the ceremony called the New Fire Ceremony. It's actually part of it. And the whole thing culminates when this priest uh, comes down the ladder with a star on his head. And he says, I'm uh, the beginning and the end. And when he says that, that's the signal for everybody to tear the stars off their heads. So they tear all the clothes off and rush up the ladder um, as a sort of dress or an undress rehearsal, if you like, for the next um, era change, because the, the Hopi have this, this this system of eras. They say we're in the uh, fourth, the end of the fourth era is approaching, and that at the end of the fourth era comes, and then you have the fifth era, which they call the world. Um, so we're at the end of the fourth world, and this whole design of this kiva encapsulates this concept, because there's a hole in the bottom called the sipapu, which is the, the emergence point from the last era into or the, the third era into the current fourth era. Mm-hmm. As they go up the ladder and out the top, that represents the emergence from the fourth era into yeah, the fifth the era. Right, right. Um, so the whole thing is encapsulating a, re, a replay of the last year. It's called an emergence, this transition from one era to the next. It's, mm-hmm. it, it plays through an, uh, a practice of the, la, of the last one, a replay of the last one, and a sort of rehearsal for the next one. Uh, so, and it also connects up directly to the new fire ceremony, and um, the, there are other Hopi prophets that actually um, put this, this era of uh, purification between, uh, they, they say, leading up to this era change, this emergence, there will be a period of purification. And um, several uh, Native Americans have said that this, uh, era is a 25-year era leading up to 2012. Uh, one of these people was Moses Shongo, who was a Seneca medicine man of a different tribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in 1925, he prepared his granddaughter, Twyla Nitsch, to, um, to carry his teachings. Uh, and uh, this includes a prophecy that there'd be a 25-year period of purification leading up to 2012, uh, and that during that time, the earth would purge itself during this purification or prepare itself and cleanse itself, ready for this transition. Huh. Uh, and there's been other, there's been a Pueblo Indian from uh, northern New Mexico, his name's Speaking Wind, 
and he said that the fifth world will start in 2012. So, you know, this is spread around the tribes of Northern America, but there's a direct connection uh, to the Aztecs and and to 2012 behind it all. Very interesting. All right, uh, let's see. Here's a question. What, uh, if any, role do ETs play in this whole game? Is an extraterrestrial card being mentioned by anybody? I know that Ian Lungold, I think, was somebody who had that maybe in his ideas. Yeah, a lot of people have brought this in. Um, Where the hell is that earlier, from? There's been a lot of people who've had, um, uh, well, they prefer to call them contact experiences right, now, but alien right, abduction right. experiences where uh, con- uh, close encounters of a third kind, um, where uh, people have seemed to have been um, shifted. I mean, it's, it's a point as to whether this is actually an out-of-body experience or uh, whether it is a physical experience. So that depends on, on who you speak to as to what they think. But the fact is that um, some research has been done by Michael Persinger. With, um, he's made a special electromagnetic helmet, modified a motorbike crash helmet, and stuck some magnets into it and connected it all up so that he can uh, play around with the magnetic fields of the human brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's managed to induce alien abduction experiences in people where it feels like they get strange feelings in the genitals, for one thing, and they get this thing of uh, they see see things that look like greys and feel things grabbing them on the shoulder and all this. But um, that doesn't mean that these things are not real in some um, way. But uh, a lot of these people I've said earlier have come back from these experiences knowing nothing about 2012. Uh, John King was one who um, he later became... Uh, editor of a magazine over here called UFO Reality, and he did a little a column about this, which was all sort of encoded as a sort of fictional uh, series. Uh, and then eventually the magazine, other than the magazine, had uh, been asked to interview and to explain what it was all about, and that's where he explained uh, that he was given this message that um, that there was, um, and it all involved crop circles, funnily enough. He was told this was right at the beginning of the uh, well, early in the days of the crop circle phenomenon, when it wasn't so widely known, and uh, it was told that there would be these these, these uh, signs in the fields that would sort of um, show that this is a process that's being uh, monitored by these um, beings, you see. <laughs> and he was told there's this invisible mothership which will uh, sort of materialise or will become visible uh, around 2012, and that... Um, you know, they're, they're, they're here to help us through the transition, sort of thing. Hmm. You know, the only thing I can think of takes me back to uh, the DMT research because, you know, uh, as Rick Strassman pointed out, and you mentioned earlier, that's a that's a good way to evoke or uh, bring on that sort of an experience as well, an, abdu- an abduction experience or an out-of-body experience or an absolute otherworldly experience that... Uh, that seems to pass the bar as absolutely real. Yes, and um, for my uh, website, I got uh, a woman called um, Caroline. Uh, I forgot to say name, but anyway, <laughs> she um, was very interested in the work of John Mack, who's done his work with a lot of abductees. Right, right, right. Died just and, a year or two um, ago. She got into an email conversation. Uh, well, she first of all she did a review of um, Strassman's book for her website. And as a sort of um, a closing piece for that um, review, she she gave some extracts from an email conversation she'd had with Strassman in which she asked him what he thought about uh, the work of John Mack. And 
because he'd also he'd actually found that yes, in alien abduction experiences in particular, DMT is produced in the pineal gland, uh, and that where, what his re- response was about this whole 2012 scenario, and he came up with a very interesting answer, saying that he thought it was a possibility. He'd actually been thinking about this that um, that the, uh, the the molecule that actually is responsible for producing DMT in the pineal gland, uh, that that will uh, sort of attach itself to something like the common cold virus and spread around um, to everyone. So uh, all it will take to trigger it is is some sort of environmental, unusual environmental circumstance, which he said it could be something like, um, you know, the galactic alignment process or um, an unusual planetary alignment or extra solar activity or that it could actually involve some sort of input from these these beings. Hmm. And regardless of the the cause, uh, the causal factor, it's the point that there there would be a shift then in what? In in the, the levels of these things in our brains where maybe we were turned on all the time or something or? Well, you would you would hope that it wouldn't be all the time. You'd <laughs> hope there'd be some sort of control over it. Yes. Right. But um, yes, that basically uh, that that the idea is there. That I suppose you can look at it in two ways. Either it's a slow shifting into where lots of people, depending on how sensitive they are to this, um, shift into this state of consciousness over a, a period of time, or that something suddenly triggers it and uh, and it all happens to everyone at the same time. I mean, I tend to. I think it's more likely the first scenario myself. Mm. It's more a window area rather than a, a flash bang sort of thing. Right. I mean, I think the whole concept of 2012 uh, is better looked at as a window sort of thing. As you mentioned, I mean, right now, I mean, we're five and a half, what, six years away from the actual solstice point. But, I mean, but as far as the, on a 26,000-year scale or whatever, I mean, we're right there. Yeah, there's an, an important thing to bring up at this point, which is... Um, a lot of people have pointed out that, <clears throat> astronomically speaking, the actual um, conjunction of the solstice sun with the um, galactic equator, astronomically speaking, happened around 1998. Because, um, you know, the astronomers, actually, there's a couple of astronomers, that one says 1999, one says 98. So it's down there somewhere. We're talking about a very small amount of movement there. Um, but that, that could be seen as the center of this process, which started in 1980 and then. 2016, where the actual, because the sun's half degree wide, so it takes, it takes 72 years for one degree, 36 years for half a degree, so from 1980 to 2016, it's the galactic alignment window, which is kind of targeted at 2012, and they didn't target 1998, so a lot of people presume that they, that they as a miscalculation of what would still be an incredible calculation uh, all those years ago. From all the evidence I've come up with, all these other people coming from the state of consciousness and, uh, you know, the cross-referencing of all these um, calendars of prophecies and religions all seem to point to this time. It seems to me that the Maya didn't make a mistake, that they deliberately targeted that point in the galactic alignment window. And that the alignment window can be seen as an hour hand, where the actual point, the end point of the 30 maximum cycle can be seen as a sort of minute hand, you see. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's also interesting to note that the calendar, or at least historically, their calendar really is not so much an end as it is a rollover to a new 
uh, to a new age. And I think it's important we make that point one more time, that it's really a rollover to something new. Whatever that is, who knows what. But. Yes, it's definitely cyclical. I mean, the, the trouble is that the, the, the Aztec has given people this concept that this is uh, the fifth and final era, mm. that there won't be a sixth sun. But, I mean... Uh, the Aztecs had, were, had definitely misinterpreted a lot of the information they were given. They were, um, I mean, John Major Jenkins has just brought out a fantastic book called um, Pyramid of Fire, which right. he investigates um, an ancient uh, Aztec codex, which has come to light recently. Right, with Marty Matz, yeah. That's the one. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, uh, I've forgotten what I was going to say about it now. <laughs> well, we were talking about um, uh, how the Aztec had misinterpreted some of this stuff. Oh, yes. Well, they, uh, I mean, Laurette Sejourné, uh, who's a, an archaeologist, did a study on the Aztecs and Toltecs, and she was convinced that the Toltec religion was a religion about rebirth, and that a lot of these, um, these symbols they had in their myths were to be taken symbolically, but the, the Aztecs, who came along later and took over these beliefs, they interpreted them uh, literally. So you have the symbol of the snake, that sheds its skin, being a symbol of rebirth. Right, right. That was taken too literally by the Aztecs, who ended up um, skinning their captives and walking around in the skins. Oh. And, you know, a lot of their gruesome practices were a misinterpretation of things that, were, that sh- should originally have been taken uh, on a symbolic level uh, about rebirth. Right, Jenkins I mean... His, um, work on that codex in the Pyramid of Fire, uh, it, it does support that, um, that view, and it seems... The, the people that wrote this were aware, I mean, it's, it's actually said that the person that wrote it says that the people are unaware that these things should be taken uh, as a symbol of rebirth. And it talks about yeah. the, the, the snake within us all um, being a, a sort of, um, this being a kind of uh, life force within us. And it, mm-hmm. it's very, very similar to the Hindu con- concept of Kundalini, the fire snake, oh. which... Uh, is coiled in three and a half coils at the base of the spine. You know, you have these right. in the Kundalini and the Hindu skin. We've got these seven chakras or power zones running up the spine. The bottom one is called the Sushumna or the base chakra. This is where the Kundalini is supposedly coiled in three and a half coils around what they call the Shiva Lingam, which is this, um, you've got the Shiva, the male god above, and um, Shakti, Shakti, the female god below, the mm-hmm. earth god, and. Um, the Shiva line of force comes down the human spine, and um, this Kundalini yoga is a, uh, a yoga which, a discipline which you uh, go through these complex procedures of, of awakening the fire snake, so it slowly rises up the spine, energizing each of the chakras in turn until it gets to the crown chakra on the top of the head where um, Shiva and Shakti are united, and you get this uh, trance of Samadhi, which is uh, the end of duality, it's ego annihilation. And uh, there's a lot of um, inference that this is what exactly what the, the Toltec religion was all about. Hmm. And a woman called um, uh, Mary Scott has done a study of not only of uh, the, this Hindu um, belief in the Kundalini, uh, she's looked at the findings of uh, dowsers like um, Guy Underwood, and he went around sacred sites with um, uh, dowsing these energies, and he found discovered that there was a lot of um, what he called geospirals and blind springs uh, where you get the spirals of, of this invisible force but there were always multiples of three and a half in these, in these worlds and that sort of connected up directly with the Kundalini concept and that this is an earth force 
and it comes up from below. And this is, uh, you know, it sort of ties in this whole concept that we may be looking at kind of mass Kundalini experience as well in 2012. Mm, amazing. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Jeff, we'll, we'll just uh, have to keep our eyes on it, you know. It's amazing uh, to be a part of it, just to, to watch the whole thing pan out, because uh, it's only going to get more and more interesting, I think, as we get closer. Anyway, well, look, uh, I think we're about at the end of our time here, so let's uh, say thanks, and uh, I'll let you have some last words, and we can give out the website address again and the book, and we'll definitely stay in touch, and hopefully we can do a program uh, again, uh, and m- uh, maybe just uh, you know on a regular basis like I do with, with Jay and John, just talk every once in a while just to see what's going on in your world, you know? Okay, right. So you want me to... Uh talk about the book on the website sure if you'd like to stir anything you'd like to finish up with well yes the uh i'm i'm currently i'm sort of putting together another update for the website which should come out um in the next two or three weeks uh where i i sort of scan what's going on there's a, there are a lot of books coming out on this subject at the moment uh and some of them are more interesting than others some of them are just bouncing off the same old stuff again. A lot of these are fictional books, actually. Mm. Um, But uh, it's incredible just how much material is being produced on this at the moment. And as you say, it's uh, it's going to get bigger and bigger, I think. And let me ask you another question before we go. You know, I made a comment um, to John last week when we were talking that when I went to the mainstream news searches, like I went to Google and I put in uh, just the number 2012, and then I clicked on the news tab, right? And, yeah. and and I just wanted to see, you know, what was the, the sort of pulse of the of the news with regard to twenty twelve. There wasn't one there was one story that was tangentially connected that had to do with the uh, international astronomical convention gonna be held in Beijing in twenty twelve. But other than that, there was not one thing that had to do with anything uh, of of the uh, sort that we've been talking about. It was primarily ninety five percent about the Olympics and sporting events. Yeah, and also the the American elections figure strongly. In I'm sure that will become to, to figure strongly too. So, and do you, do you, do you see this? Protocol is another thing, which is is quite significant. Although it might not seem it at first, because it, this is the uh, the date by which we're supposed to have got the planet all cleaned, up, um, huh. you know, ready ready for uh, a sort of new clean planet era. Huh. And so there's a lot of websites discussing. Uh, will we, you know, will we get it together by 2012? Will the post-2012 society be have uh, got the whole pollution thing sorted? Hmm. Interesting. Boy, it sure doesn't appear that that that's going to happen unless something remarkable happens between now and then. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if we had a mass change of consciousness uh, in 2012, then then we've got a we're in with a chance. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, amazing, uh, Jeff. Thanks again so much for your time, and uh, we'll be in touch. Okay. The uh, the the website is diagnosis. Uh, diagnosis2012.co.uk and Jeff, the new book, Beyond 2012. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Mike. All right, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch and I'll put up a, uh, uh, a link over to your site from here on out and we'll have the show up in the archives in just a day or so, okay? Great, thanks a lot. All right, wonderful. Take care of yourself, Jeff. Bye then. All right, bye-bye. All right, everybody, there it was, Jeff Stray, wonderful stuff, and uh, very pleased to have Jeff on the program finally, and we'll definitely have another uh, show in the future uh, as we get closer to this uh, 
interesting time that we're right in the middle of now. So anyway, okay, it's Mike, and thanks for listening, everybody. It's Sunday afternoon, just a little bit after 2 o'clock. We're going to finish things up with one more piece of music here and say thanks to Jeff Stray one more time, www.diagnosis2012.co.uk, and you'll be able to link over to Jeff's site uh, from MikeHagan.com from here on out, all right? Okay, look, uh, I'll be back with you all tomorrow night. Monday night we'll have the normal Monday evening show. Jay Widener will be joining us from his place in Seattle, and we'll have some great music to accompany the show. And we'll talk about some news and space weather and do everything that we normally do on Monday night. So hope you're back with me. You can check it out on the web in the meantime at MikeHagan.com and also KOPN.org. All right, last tune of the day here. This one's called Sunday Driver. And it's by uh, this band called Blue Spectral Monkey. I love it. Blue Spectral Monkey, Sunday Driver, Radio Orbit. Take care. Talk to you tomorrow night.